Hello and welcome to the recording of our recent event on preventing nuclear proliferation and reassuring America's allies. I am Wolfgang Ischinger. I am a senior professor of security policy and diplomatic practice at the Hertie School and I'm also the chairman of the Munich Security Conference. I was joined in this discussion by my good friend Ivo Dalder, president of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. We spoke about the recent report published by a task force we were both part of, which analyzed the potential risk of nuclear proliferation among US allies and provided a set of policy recommendations in response. The event took place on May 10th, 2021, as part of the Center for International Security's research project, I quote, Understanding Nuclear Assurance, Deterrence and Escalation in Europe, end of quote, funded by the Stanton Foundation. It was co-hosted by the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. If you enjoy this recording, make sure to stay up to date with the Center by subscribing to our newsletter. Thank you very much. Let me welcome all of you for an hour or an hour and a half on complex nuclear issues. I'm very pleased that the Hertie School has been able to put this event together in cooperation with the Chicago Council. It's a fact. I, I believe that nuclear strategy, nuclear sharing, and related questions and issues have not received as much attention among the German wider public and even, even among German political elites as they uh, would have deserved. It now seems as if in the upcoming German Bundestag elections, whether one likes it or not, these nuclear issues will tend to play a certain role because important decisions wait to be taken by the German government. Are we going to uh, acquire a new airplane that is going to, to, uh, to be the successor to the tornado for this uh, quote-unquote nuclear role, uh, etc.? What about the future of nuclear sharing? The political parties which are going to play a role in, in the German election have widely differing views, not surprisingly, and it would be, it would in fact be a surprise if this issue would not create some serious problems for whatever configuration of, uh, of a future coalition we're going to, to have. So these issues matter, and that's why we want to talk about it tonight. I'm happy to, uh, to say that this is a hearty event. The Center on International Security at the Hertie School has been conducting a, an internationally based research program, which Tobias Bunde, who is with us here, is, is managing, uh, Understanding Nuclear Assurance, Deterrence and Escalation in Europe. This program is trying to explore these issues further and, uh, and also and enhance understanding of the implications and of the options for German political elites. I'm very pleased to welcome my good old friend Ivo Dalder. He is the president of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, which has been, this institution has been a very, very good friend of Germany ever since the days of Konrad Adenauer and, and, and Helmut Kohl. So we have a long history of cooperation between Bonn and now Berlin and the Chicago Council. Ivo has a very, very impressive CV. He worked in the Clinton administration in the National Security Council on European issues. He then was in, spent years as, a, as an academic with the Brookings Institution and, and, and elsewhere. And then 2009, after the election of Barack Obama, he was sent off to be the United States ambassador to NATO. Uh, where he served until 2013. This is probably the single most important, at least from the German point of view, ambassadorial appointment in European and global security. A 
America's ambassador to NATO. And then, of course, since his retirement from public service, he has been running and directing the Chicago Council. So welcome, Ivo. What we're talking about tonight is a report, which a task force, which Ivo put together many months ago. Among the members of this task force are such experienced people as, for example, Chuck Hagel, a former long-term senator and, of course, Secretary of Defense, Malcolm Rifkind, former UK Foreign Secretary and Secretary of Defense, Kevin Rudd, China expert and former Prime Minister, of course, of Australia, and such other luminaries as uh, Espen Bard Eide, former Norwegian Foreign Minister, Rick Bird, strategic negotiator for, for the START negotiations and ambassador to Germany, by the way, François Heisbourg, a French, well-known French expert, former NATO Supreme Allied Commander Curtis Scaparotti, and also another good friend of the Munich Security Conference, Radik Sikorski, former foreign minister and defense minister of, of Poland. So a really good group of senior experts which have worked together to put this report together about the question of how do we move forward after, and I'll leave the explaining, of course, now to Ivo, after four years, which have been four years of disruption, four years in which trust, which seemed to be to many of us permanent, permanently established. We trust America to make us safe. And certainly when it comes to nuclear challenges and nuclear risks, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden doubts were expressed by the president of the United States himself. Uh, that was a shock to many of us, not only in Germany, but, but elsewhere. So how can we restore trust? How can we move forward in terms of working together in the alliance, working together bilaterally? And certainly, of course, not only, this is not only about Europe, this is even first and foremost about challenges more in the Asian region. Think when you think of proliferation, think of Iran, think of North Korea, think of how we can bring China at some point into serious discussions about nuclear arms control, etc. So huge number of important issues. Ivo, I'm, I want to thank you for making yourself available today. I'd like to invite you to present the report, talk about the report from your point of view, and then we'll launch into a Q&A session. Ivo, over to you, please. Well, Wolfgang, thank you so much for that kind introduction, and, and thank you all for, for joining us. And let me just briefly tell you a little bit about where this task force came from and then highlight the main questions of the report. As, as Wolfgang said, with the election of, of President Trump back in 2016, one of the questions that really hadn't been addressed for a very long time uh, was the issue of America's not only its security commitment to allies uh, around the world, but its nuclear commitment to allies around the world. And uh, we thought it was important to remind people that uh, when you go back to the 1950s and particularly in the early 1960s, the consensus view around the world was that proliferation, what was then called the nth country problem, that is who is the next on the list of countries to acquire nuclear weapons, was almost a given. That any country that could acquire nuclear weapons would acquire nuclear weapons. That in fact had been the case, it's how the United States started, it's how uh, uh, the Soviet Union acquired nuclear weapons 49 and then Britain in 1952 and then France in 1960 and uh, the, the China in 1960 and then France in 1964. Uh, and there was this expectation uh, that any country that had an active nuclear uh, program uh, would not only use it for peaceful purposes, but also for weapons purposes. And in the aftermath of the Cuban Missile Crisis, still probably the most severe nuclear crisis we faced in, in, in the nuclear age, uh, a, a agreement in principle uh, was reached within the U.S. government and then uh, tacitly, at least with the Soviet Union, 
that said that the world will be a safer place if no more countries acquire nuclear weapons. That we keep the, 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 the club of nuclear nations small and ultimately uh, reverse it to back down to zero. That led to the negotiations of the Nuclear Proliferation uh, Treaty, which was signed in 1962 and entered into force in 1970, uh, close collaboration between the United States and the Soviet Union, and later, uh, of course, other countries uh, being part of that as well. The focus of that effort was for the United States, principally towards developed, in many cases, allied countries. There was the belief that the next nuclear nations were going to be countries that were allies of the United States, including Germany, including Japan, including Australia, uh, including the Korea, uh, South Korea, and a whole host of issues. And as part of the nuclear negotiations of the NPT, the United States worked with its allies to say, we will guarantee your nuclear security so you don't have to. And we had a big debate in the 1960s, and we had another debate in the 1970s, and we had another debate in the 1980s about how to make that commitment credible. Because frankly, it is an extraordinary commitment. It is a commitment by one country to say, we will uh, be willing to commit suicide for the defense of you. That's in essence what the nuclear guarantee means. We are willing to, uh, sacrifice Boston in order to defend Berlin. Um, and that commitment was made uh, by the United States as part of its security arrangements with its allies. And it was extraordinarily successful in the sense that no country that uh, could acquire nuclear weapons that was an ally of the United States acquired nuclear weapons because of the nuclear guarantee. In the 90s, in the first half of uh, uh, the first decade of this, of this century, these issues just weren't being debated, as, as Wolfgang said. But once the question of America's credibility uh, was again put on the table, and at the same time, the security environment confronting allies was changing in a pretty nasty uh, and difficult way, with Russia becoming more aggressive and deploying more capable military and capable nuclear uh, systems uh, in Europe, with China rising rapidly and actually uh, posing a significant security challenge to Japan and other uh, nations in East Asia. And of course, with North Korea, not only acquiring nuclear weapons, but also the means to deliver them against the United States. The question of America's nuclear guarantee to allies once again was coming to the fore. So we pulled together a task force uh, that uh, brought together former officials from uh, the United States, from Europe, and from Asia, which is why it was chaired by uh, Chuck Hagel, uh, Malcolm Rifkind, and Kevin Rudd, to have a discussion about both the seriousness of the issue, why it was, uh, uh, why it, we needed to address it, and what we could do about it. Uh, and we wrote uh, the report and uh, drafted many, in fact, all of the recommendations prior to the US election, uh, but waited to see what the outcome of that election was um, uh, because it, uh, the urgency might be different if Donald Trump had been reelected versus uh, uh, Joe Biden. But we also agreed that it was extraordinarily important that even if Joe Biden uh, was going to be elected and even if you had a president recommitting itself to alliances, that the issues that were raised weren't going to go away. Uh, as, as Wolfgang said, that restoring trust, but more uh, but, and, and, and manifesting that in the nuclear, in the nuclear sense was now more important uh, than it had been for a very long time, at least since the early 1980s. And so uh, we brought this task force together that said, we need to think about this, not just as a European problem, not just as an Asia problem, but as a US and allies problem. Um, and so uh, we laid out a series of recommendations and I'll just pick a couple of them off. They're all in the report, um, uh, but they are, uh, they are important to highlight. First, uh, we thought it was very important for the United States to fully and completely recommit itself, uh, not only to the alliances, but to, to security commitments that are essential within those alliances. Article five uh, in the NATO treaty, article five in the bilateral agreement with, uh, with Japan, article three, in the agreement with uh, uh, Korea. 
uh, and make that very clear and manifested uh, by reversing decisions with regard to withdrawal of forces from Germany uh, and concluding rapidly uh, agreements on, uh, on stationing US forces in, uh, in Asia and indeed in, in Europe uh, to recommit to NATO, to recommit to these alliances. Secondly, uh, we think it is extremely important that the United States elevate the issue of nuclear planning and nuclear forces in its dialogue with its allies. When I was the US ambassador to NATO uh, from 09 to 13, uh, our discussions on nuclear issues was formulaic. That is, we had a nuclear planning group meeting once a year. We did some uh, command post exercises that involved very junior officials. Uh, we, you know, we drafted the, the strategic concept that is still in existence and, and we, we put some language uh, together to get everybody uh, uh, would be happy with, and that was it. We didn't do anything else, nothing like what we did in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. And the US, while it would talk about nuclear weapons issues, it did so in a relatively formulaic way uh, at NATO. We think this needs to be elevated that bringing allies into the planning process in the United States and making this a much more important part uh, of our engagement is important. So for example, when the nuclear posture review, if a nuclear posture review is written, having detailed conversations with our allies uh, on these issues is important. We also think it's important to start uh, uh, thinking about exercises and war game again uh, at a high uh, enough level in the level in which senior political leaders actually get reacquainted with the issues that in, uh, are involved in the nuclear age, something that frankly hasn't happened for 20 or 30 years. Back in the 80s, uh, presidents, prime ministers, and chancellors participated in these war games. Um, they haven't done so in many, many, many years. So we think it's important to raise the the interest and, 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 and acumen of senior political leaders on the nuclear, uh, nuclear issues. So that's what the United States could do. We, we have some other issues with regard to improving deterrence and defense capabilities. And we can talk about whether that involves, uh, uh, what, what that might uh, involve on the nuclear dimension, what it might involve on missile defense uh, issues that we have long discussed. Second big, set of recommendations are with regard to uh, US uh, allies. So in Europe, we think it is important that Europe enhances its capability uh, for, uh, for defense and that the United States uh, uh, welcome uh, and certainly not oppose efforts to enhance Europeans' independent and autonomous capabilities. That whatever Europe does to enhance real capability is by definition in the US interest. And that uh, if that capability is enhanced in a more independent or autonomous way, that the US should welcome that uh, rather than try to oppose it. Um, we also uh, think that commitments made with regard to increasing spending and, and, and particularly increasing real capabilities need to be fulfilled. And we have specific uh, suggestions on the line. And then finally, and perhaps most, um, most controversially, uh, we think a, a serious European di dialogue is necessary, first between the UK and France about uh, their nuclear relationship uh, and uh, how that can be deepened. And secondly, how the UK and French deterrence might be extended to European allies uh, and have a real debate and a real discussion both in Paris and London and importantly, between Paris and London and its allies in Europe. Uh, so to have, as a complement to the US deterrent, not as a, a substitute for it, but as a complement to it uh, and have uh, that discussion. Discussion, by the way, that uh, um, Emmanuel, Emmanuel Macron has already put on the table that Wolfgang himself uh, talked to Macron about in the uh, last uh, uh, in-person Munich security conference as, uh, as we well remember. So it is an issue that needs to be uh, taken hold of and dealt with more seriously. With regard to our Asian allies, uh, I'll be briefer because it's a, an issue that 
that perhaps uh, not everyone uh, either follows or is particularly interested in. We're looking at closer collaboration among Asian allies, in particular Japan, North, uh, South Korea, and Australia. We are encouraging the formation of an Asian nuclear planning group, uh, much along the lines of the NATO planning group in which this kind of conversation that the United States can have with allies occurs within a multilateral setting. Sometimes some allies aren't willing to ask certain questions of the United States, but they'd like to hear the answer. So if another ally can ask that question, that might make it uh, uh, better and easier for them to have that uh, dialogue. Uh, and also because the Asian allies are facing a much growing North Korean and Chinese, uh, Chinese threat. Uh, there are a number of other issues that we uh, suggest the Asian allies uh, and the United States do as well that I'm happy to go into if, if that's useful um, in the Q&A. But finally, the final bucket uh, relates to arms control uh, and the importance to supplement what we do on the deterrent side uh, with uh, what we do on the disarmament side, something that NATO has uh, and the U.S. has embraced since the 1960s, and we think it's important as part of a reassurance, as part of the effort to stress uh, the need for arms control. And here the focus is fundamentally on first uh, revitalizing the US-Russian uh, nuclear uh, dialogue to include not just strategic, but also non-strategic weapons uh, as a first step. And secondly, to uh, deepen uh, the collaboration among the P5 on nuclear weapons issues. So there is a dialogue that takes place in Geneva among the P5 countries on issues of doctrine. Uh, we think it is a time to elevate that, uh, to start that dialogue uh, at a higher level, uh, to have the P5, uh, the five permanent members of the UN Security Council engaged in a dialogue on nuclear doctrine, on stability, on the role of offense, on the role of defense, and evolve that dialogue towards confidence and security building measures, notifications, the kinds of things that the United States and, and the Soviet Union did back in the 1960s. Um, uh, that might include, for example, having the United States and, and Russia inviting the other three nuclear powers to observe inspections, uh, to demonstrate that you can uh, uh, maintain secrecy while uh, enhancing transparency, uh, and, and then uh, evolving that discussion into eventually some form of negotiations that limits uh, the nuclear capabilities of all uh, five nuclear powers who are, by the way, mandated to do so under Article 6 of the NPT. So a lot of, uh, a lot of specifics, uh, but all geared towards um, this very important issue of how do you enhance the credibility of a security guarantee and a nuclear guarantee that is inherently problematic for any country uh, uh, to give. An issue that NATO, uh, Europe, our Asian allies used to be uh, debating for many years, uh, have ignored now for many years, and we think is back on the table uh, and needs to be back on the table. So with that, uh, Wolfgang, I'll, I'll hand it back to you and we can have a, a good discussion. Thank you all. Great, thank you, thank you very much, Ivo. Uh, that was a great introduction to the issues. Very briefly, respond to what you said, Ivo. Uh, let me just throw out a couple of points. First, you know, speaking to the political groups in Germany that are critical of nuclear sharing and of uh, NATO, even and of the role of nuclear weapons in, in our deterrence strategy, etc. I think it cannot be repeated often enough, and you have, of course, made the point, and the point is in the, in the report, that NATO is probably, when you look back over the last uh, decades, ever since the NPT was signed and, and ratified, NATO is probably one of the world's most effective non-proliferation instruments because it prevented, for example, my own country from going nuclear. We had a debate. I'm old enough to remember it a little bit. I was a, I was a, a student at the time, but we had people like Franz Josef Strauss who advocated that Germany should get the bomb. And there was a wild debate going on for a while. 
And then, of course, because of the reassurance uh, pledge and promise, which came from the other side of the Atlantic, we ended up signing the NPT, and so did others. So it is, you know, it is actually a miracle that neither Turkey nor Italy nor Poland uh, in the last uh, uh, 30 years or so, nor any of the other old or new NATO members has felt a need or has tried to abandon the NPT framework and, and go nuclear. It's a huge achievement. It's a huge achievement. And that's due to the effectiveness or the credibility as understood then and hopefully still understood of this this nuclear sharing arrangement and the credibility of the deterrent promise. Second point, which you also made evil, and I, again, I'm speaking to my fellow Germans, European capabilities. European capabilities is more than just European processes. You know, as much as I love PESCO, it doesn't actually create a single additional brigade or, or, or it doesn't bring about a hundred additional tanks. It's a, it's a process. It's a good process, a meaningful, a, a, a useful process. But you're absolutely right. The report is absolutely right in speaking about the need to come up with real capabilities, which the uh, potential other side will understand as something that they would not like to be confronted to. So capabilities matter, not only processes. And finally, I would like to sort of invite our, our audience, our participants, if they are interested, to also raise a question which you didn't now specifically address, namely the question, is the arrangement which we've had, we in Germany and some of our European nuclear sharing allies, in other words, the combination of DCA, of dual capable aircraft with nuclear bombs, nuclear weapons, whether they are modernized or not modernized, does that represent the ultimate wisdom or are there in the future other options that would be preferable from the point of view of a European ally or maybe of the United States or of both? Are we married forever to the DCA arrangement? What other options might be possible? I think this is also a question that uh, some in our discussions here are trying to find a way to deal with. So the, the first question uh, goes to Julia Hamelele. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for this very interesting presentation. My name is Julia Hamelele and I'm working as a policy advisor for the Munich Security Conference. I've actually two questions, if I may. Uh, my first question relates to your proposal that France and Britain should extend their nuclear deterrent to the European allies. And I would be interested in your point of view regarding concerns that such a extension or that such a European deterrent might be read as questioning US extended deterrence and thus also might raise questions regarding um, the credibility of the US nuclear umbrella in other regions. And then the second one relates to sole purpose. President Biden has repeatedly expressed support for a sole purpose nuclear doctrine. Um, and I would be interested in your point of view, what, does, what that would mean or how it would impact discussions on extended deterrence. Ivo, if, if it's okay with you, I would suggest that we collect maybe one or two more and then go back to you. Sure, if you like. I just I see so many great new voices. I'd love to hear from them, their thoughts and their questions. I've been thinking about these things for such a long time. And Ivo, thank you so much for the remarks. Um, just really quickly, I there is this problem with HLG. It was originally the problem with the NPG. You get lower and lower staff levels meeting regularly. And one of the big problems is that the US, It's it's been really hard lately to convince them to have more HLGs at a higher level. Uh, and so how do we get the US to recommit to that? I think the allies will follow if uh, if we can get Leonor Tamaro and the, and the rest of the team out to NATO headquarters more often. On the Asian issue, absolutely fantastic. But really in consulting with some of our uh, Asian allies, we found that the consultations within the government needs to be beefed up. And they've actually had a lot of trouble talking on security matters. You know, the two plus twos between Japan and France were suspended. The information sharing agreement between Japan and, and South Korea was suspended. 
so I, I'm really curious to hear specific ideas. I, I, I guess I really have to read the paper. I'm very excited to read the paper, but if you have any specific comments on those, I'd love to hear it. Thank you. Sure. Wolfgang, let me, actually, let me start with you. The issue of whether DCA is, is the be-all and end-all or whether we should think about this anew. Uh, I think most importantly, let's have a, let's have a discussion about it. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, as part of the, you know, the intensified nuclear consultation, uh, the, the the question of the utility of DCA in the in in at a time when, frankly, Russian air defenses are such as to make that the credibility of that deterrent, uh, you know, raise serious questions about it. I think is 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 a perfectly uh, legitimate issue. You know, as you know. There has been a long-standing uh, interest within the alliance, and it comes from both sides, from the guarantor and the and 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 the other side, from from the Europeans and the Americans, to believe in some form of sharing arrangement that that enhances the credibility, that it also, frankly, enhances the uh, the stakes that countries have in maintaining it. And as far back as the late 1950s, we talked about a multilateral submarine force that would have European and other NATO manning, we call it manning then, staffing now, I guess, with U.S. nuclear weapons and that, and that DCA and, and frankly, uh, providing nuclear uh, uh, weapons for artillery and all the other things that we had, the sharing arrangement between a European platform and a U.S. nuclear weapon. Maintaining that in some form, I think, is important. And having that as part of the conversation is important. But whether that is the B-61 bomb or, or even the quantities that we're talking about that, you know, we're down to less than 200, I think is what I can say publicly, in, uh, uh, deployed in, in, uh, in Europe. Uh, you know, I don't think the number is as important as who participates uh, and the degree of consultation. That goes to, to William's point uh, on the HLG and the NPG. Yes, you're absolutely right that the way in which this is enhanced is by the U.S. taking the first step, uh, which is why we call on the United States to bring the nuclear planning issues much more into, uh, bring the allies much more into our internal nuclear planning processes. And, and the HLG ought to be uh, at least at an assistant secretary level. By the way, at times uh, when I was there, we, th that was still the case. The NPG met uh, at the assistant secretary level. I would argue that it, uh, that it ought to be a standing issue uh, in the defense ministerial uh, so that defense ministers uh, make, uh, uh, engage in this. Uh, and it ought to really be at the undersecretary level for the United States, the state secretary level uh, for, uh, for allies. Uh, and because what it does, and this goes to your Asia issue, what it does is it forces the rest of the bureaucracy to take the issue seriously and to start to understand what's behind it because they have to be briefing and writing the papers and doing all the work. And the reason we came out in, front, in favor of the MPG, one is to bring Australia in, which make it, made it, make it slightly more easy for Japan and South Korea to sit in the same room, however difficult that is, uh, but also to have a mechanism in which you have a regular engagement uh, on these issues that forces bureaucracies to take it seriously. And in democracies, for bureaucracies to have that discussion, parliamentarians, and therefore it becomes a political issue. Uh, you know, Kevin Rudd was, was very explicit, for example, on, on the importance of exercising. If you exercise at the foreign minister or prime minister level, you then force the rest of the entire body that supports that to start getting involved in this issue. So it's about an education process. It's about which, which as Wolfgang rightly said, you know, when 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 we were when we were younger, a lot this wasn't an issue because it was so central to what we did each and every day. Um, and, and, but it isn't any longer. So you need to make that part of the of the process. Then to 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 Yulia's excellent uh, excellent questions on, on the fear of decoupling. It's the old language. If you if you have a European deterrent, right? Uh, yes, it's a serious one. And I think it is very important that this fear, which is a fear held by the, those who will be protected by the deterrent, that that be a central part of the discussion. And how do you maintain complementarity? How do you get the French to do more in terms of extending its deterrent capacity and engaging in discussions? By the way, France is the only NATO country that is not a member of the MPG. 
and how do you change that? How do you change that that kind of uh, discussion without giving uh, reason for fears of decoupling? I mean, that's 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 the key. But by the way, that argument, that issue, has been on the table since 1957, the day that the United States became vulnerable to retaliation from the Soviet Union. Decoupling is 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 part of that. So you you how do you deal with that? You deal with it with constant uh, uh, discussions. The one way you don't deal with it is not to talk about it. So that's a, a key issue. Sole purpose, uh, my favorite question that comes up uh, almost every time. You may know that uh, I actually wrote an article back in 19, in 2008 and tried to convince the Obama administration to embrace sole purpose as the U.S. doctrine. And I still strongly believe that for nuclear planning purposes, uh, the sole purpose of nuclear weapons is to deter the use of nuclear weapons by the other side. That's how you think about force posturing. It's how you think about what you need. It's about requirements. I'm totally uh, in favor of that. Sole purpose, by the way, does not mean no first use. No first use is a doctrine. It says, and it says, under what circumstances one uses nuclear weapons. Sole purpose is a planning uh, uh, process about how you think about the role of nuclear weapons in your strategy. I think the two, I think extended deterrence to the extent it has credibility, um, it will be as credible under sole purpose as it will be without sole purpose. Uh, there was a famous article by one of the great nuclear strategists of all times uh, Laurie Friedman, uh, in international security back in the 1980s, that is called is, I, I exist, therefore I deter. Uh, that's the title of the article. It was Mac Bundy, former national security advisor who wrote, uh, uh, of course, the big, the big argument, who made the big argument for no first use, who came up with this idea of ex existential deterrent. I'm a huge believer in existential deterrence. I believe that no leader will exclude the possibility of nuclear escalation when, it is, when confronted with the possibility of a war with a nuclear adversary. Tom Schelling, another great nuclear strategist, in his um, speech of, uh, receiving the Nobel Prize for Economics, talked about this phenomenon, that leaders understand that risking nuclear war is something uh, you don't engage in. Uh, and therefore the deterrence actually is, is relatively easy. What's difficult is reassurance. It is to convince your allies that you're willing to do something that absolutely makes no sense. That is holding at risk Boston to defend Berlin, which frankly makes no sense. That's the problem. And so deterrence is an alliance, uh, nuclear issues are alliance management issues, uh, much more than they are deterrence issues. Um, and that's why we wrote the report we did, because as Wolfgang said, NATO, US alliances are the most successful non-proliferation tool we've had. Great, thank you, Ivo. I see two more hands up. One is Frank Musin, and the other one is Steve Pfeiffer. And uh, why don't you two speak first, Frank, and then Steve, please. Yes, uh, hello, Frank Mason. I'm a diplomatic advisor to the minister in the Belgian uh, government. Um, thank you for organizing this. I have a question on nuclear sharing to Ambassador Dalder. What, in your view, is, is or are the core functions of nuclear sharing what is their exact added value in comparison, of course, with the deterrent provided by the, the US um, uh, nuclear arsenal? Thank you. Okay, and Steve, please. Yeah, thank you, Wolfgang, and uh, Eva, thanks for a great presentation. I, I'm Steve Pfeiffer, now at the uh, Robert Bosch Academy, but uh, going back soon, back to my home base in California where I'm at Stanford. Eva, it, it seems as you describe it, I mean, assurance, and I, and I agree that it, you know, nuclear weapons in Europe are a lot more about assurance than they are about deterrence. Uh, but it's fundamentally a software problem. It is at the end of the day, do allied leaders believe that an American president, that he or she will use nuclear weapons in their defense? And I think oh, if you look at the history of NATO going back to the 1950s, the solutions we keep coming up with are hardware solutions. So multilateral force back in the early 1960s, Pershing twos and ground launch cruise missiles. Um, 
Can I ask you to maybe to dig a little deeper? Are, you know, are there other software fixes that you know might be possible uh, that would you know, perhaps save some money uh, in, in terms of what NATO needs to do on the nuclear side uh, by bolstering the assurance capabilities? Before you respond, Ivo, let me add a point to the question Steve just asked. I think that even during the uh, quote-unquote good old days of the Cold War, there were, of course, these doubts, which you've explained. Would the President of the United States sacrifice whatever city for, for Bonn or Berlin or any other NATO country? I think what helped in those days to create the necessary assurance was actually the physical presence of hundreds, literally hundreds of thousands of U.S. service men and women plus their families. It added up, quote unquote, in the good old days of the Cold War, literally to hundreds of thousands. Now, I understand that because we have the NATO-Russia founding act, etc., it is not so easy to create the same kind of U.S. assurance to um, our, our partners, neighbors, and allies in Poland or, or Estonia, et cetera. We're now doing it on a kind of a rotating uh, basis, et cetera. So it is slightly more complicated, slightly less convincing, if you wish, uh, than it was in our case. Uh, we were actually, we felt pretty safe because we had this enormous presence with lots of equipment, and, 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 and infrastructure and, you know, and American schools and hospitals, uh, everything. So we thought this is probably worth for America to actually defend, even if it were not about us. So maybe you can, you can also talk about that more, more psychological aspect uh, a little bit, please. Back to you, Evo. Well, the, the, these all, all three questions, frankly, uh, on points go to the same sort of issue. That is, it, it is how do you how do you reassure allies, uh, and how do allies reassure each other, including Europeans reassuring that they're willing to fight for their own security and their own interests, if if the United States is willing to do that. And this has been the core issue at the at the heart of the alliance from day one. And the answer. At, at, at its core is because our values and our interests are at stake uh, and they're worth defending and they're worth defending together. And that no amount of hardware solution, including I would argue the deployment of, of, of uh, hundreds of thousands of troops and families in and of itself is sufficient without the, the, the understanding, deep cultural understanding that our interests are so intertwined that the security of one is essential for the security of others. And, and that was perhaps easier to demonstrate in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s because uh, the threat uh, was so manifest uh, both ideologically and militarily at the Iron Curtain. Uh, and therefore, you, it wasn't as much a need to, un, to, to explore that in depth. And there was less of a need in the, in, in the 90s and, for, and the aughts, or whatever we call the first decade of the, of, of the century, because the threat was, was not manifest and nobody particularly worried about this issue, except in, in, in different ways. But now we do again, and now we're, we're motivated again. So we, we therefore need to have this deep, uh, discussion about where our interests co coincide and who is willing to do what to defend. And it is, it is back to the kinds of serious discussions within NATO that we frankly haven't had for a long time. And not just about nuclear weapons, I'd say the same is true for, for conventional weapons and the role of missile defense. And that the ideological baggage that we all bring to this on the United States side, just as much as, as on the uh, European side, uh, we we need to find ways to overcome these before I think before we we uh, went on the air so to say Wolfgang we were talking about the nuclear debate in the 80s it wasn't particularly helpful to have a lot of people running about how you can how you can win a nuclear war uh, 
uh, it, it didn't it didn't really help uh, uh, the, the 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 trying to get to a common to to a set of common uh, commonalities. So that's point one. It's this political piece. But you know, how do you because there are doubts, how do you express them? And 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 I think it it has a software component and a hardware component, and the hardware component includes both conventional and nuclear to get to to the answer. The software component is NATO. It's the alliance. It's the command structure. It's the it's the very integrated way in which we operate, and it's the consultation and planning, and joint planning and joint efforts that we do. So I think that the most important thing we did ever on the nuclear assurance side was the MPG. It was the creation of the nuclear planning group that brought Europeans into the process of understanding how the United States thought about deterrence and nuclear war. That's the stop. Then, the, then, then I do think that the presence of foreign troops on your soil is an expression of joint risk and joint vulnerability. You know, I've never been a, a big fan of the NATO-Russia founding act. I am I'm, I'm more than willing to have a serious discussion about whether we should uh, revisit our unilateral commitment, which is a unilateral commitment, not to deploy forces forward uh, on a permanent basis, uh, given what the Russians are doing. You know, when the Russians can deploy 120,000 troops on uh, the borders of NATO or a partner nation, which they just did, then I think we should have the right to deploy uh, significant troops to defend our allies. And so I, I think there is a serious discussion we need to have on the conventional side. And then on the nuclear side, there is there's a question of vulnerability, of shared vulnerability. And uh, although in theory, I could make the case that deterrence is possible without nuclear sharing arrangements, I would argue deterrence is possible without forward-based system. Reassurance isn't. And not only reassurance of the host country, reassurance of the one that is providing the guarantee. That is, the sharing arrangement is not just about telling Belgium or Holland or, or Germany that you now have a role in the deterrence process. It's also telling the United States that you're willing to have a role in this process and thereby make yourself vulnerable. So it is a, it is a two-way street in some ways. And that's what the forward base, I, it's more important to where they're based, frankly, than who commands what uh, piece of hardware. Uh, that's why that is important front, I would argue, it is part of that nuclear sharing arrangement. And it is, it is reassuring to the United States to think that Germany or Belgium uh, is willing to be host to these systems. Because it then, get, by the way, it also gives you a bigger voice in the whole process, which gets you back to the software piece. I think we have time for at least one additional question. And I... I saw in the chat that Tobias has written what I think is a really relevant point. So Tobias, why don't you present that uh, to the group orally? Go right ahead, please. I think this is a really important point. Or if I may, since since Ivo uh, just mentioned the two-way street, that is the nuclear uh, sharing arrangement, I would just be interested in your take on, on an argument that is often heard in the German debate so that uh, Germany could basically leave uh, the technical part of the nuclear sharing arrangement, uh, continue to be part of the nuclear uh, discussions in the NPG, but basically that then the nuclear sharing arrangement as such would continue. These people often say that other countries such as Canada or Greece have left the arrangement before, or the technical part at least, and basically argue that, that Germany wouldn't be a different case. I would be interested in what, what you think would happen if Germany decided to get rid of the remaining uh, non-strategic weapons at Büchel Air Base and whether this would mean the, the end of the nuclear sharing arrangement or whether there would be a solution. Um, so is there nuclear sharing without Germany? I mean, Germany is not just another country. In essence, Part of the alliance history revolves around Germany because Germany was divided. And in part, the presence of the, the conventional forces in Germany uh, actually had nothing to do with NATO. It had to do with what preceded it. So there, there is a uniqueness to Germany. Uh, and that uniqueness means that if Germany says, we no longer want to participate in the nuclear sharing agreement, 
then it, it, the logical step would be for Belgium and the Netherlands and Italy to say the same thing uh, and said, we're not going to be no align gang here in, in, the, in, in that way. Uh, so a German decision is a decision basically to abandon uh, de facto, if not de jure, nuclear sharing arrangements uh, that exist because there are only four active countries, although there are more countries still inactive in the nuclear sharing piece. So in that sense, it's not just a German decision. It's a decision that has ramifications throughout. And so I think the question I, I would throw back is that, let's have a real discussion about what is needed and, and, and what is necessary. And let's do that within an alliance context. Uh, and and uh, if you wanna be a member of NATO, and if you wanna be a member that is, participates within this larger context, then we need to make these decisions uh, in, in jointly as opposed to unilaterally. So let's take Greece. That was not a decision by Greece. The decision by the United States uh, on, on the question of nuclear sharing for, you know, reasons we can't get into it, but that's what it is. Uh, take the Canadians. It's not that the Canadians abandoned the role. The Canadians withdrew their troops. Uh, so it's very hard to do it when you don't have co troops here to have a nuclear sharing arrangement. And by the way, of course, Canada does have a, nu a, a nuclear or a variety of sharing arrangements with the United States because it's a member of NORAD and therefore, and has capabilities that are pretty essential to strategic deterrence. And so each country has its own sort of specifics, but it needs to be worked out in concert. And, and in that sense, one, it isn't clear that, that even that Germany could follow the, the others down the line because they went in a, in, a, in a way that is different in making a national decision, uh, number one, but two, if you care about the alliance and you care about deterrence and reassurance, how you deal with this issue is not through a unilateral step. So I think a government that comes in and says, we want to have a serious discussion about nuclear weapons issues in NATO within the NATO context is, you know, that makes total sense. And I think we should. I mean, and that includes Wolfgang's early question early on. We really need DCA. I think that's perfectly valid to have a serious discussion about it and not one that says, oh no, we can't talk about this because it's terrible. And I think we made a mistake uh, in, 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 in 2011 when Vestavella wanted to have this discussion for us to say, no, let's not do it. Uh, because, you know, uh, because the orthodoxy says we can't. I'm perfectly comfortable as long as it's based on the idea that we're in this together. And as long as it's based on the idea that this sharing arrangement has benefits, including on the issue of non-proliferation. Uh, to, to Wolfgang's point, you may not know this, but the, Germany signed the NPT in 1970, but only ratified it in 1975. It took five years of internal debate about whether or not to forego the nuclear option. It took Japan six years. They didn't join until 1976 because they wanted to have this assurance, rightly so. And so making sure that we don't lose of this because the politics of the moment suggests we uh, uh, the difficulty I think is, is is critically important if everybody bears with me let's let's go into at least two or three minutes of overtime here because there is one other question which Tillman Leicht wrote into the chat and if you allow Tillman I'll just read it to save time uh, read it out to you depending on the time he, uh, Tillman says one question how to further integrate France into NATO's nuclear structures? Is it only an issue of policy planning versus nuclear policy? And this, of course, refers to this initiative undertaken by President Macron uh, last year when he repeatedly offered to start at least a discussion with interested allies about uh, France's uh, nuclear capabilities. So to conclude our session, Ivo, Give us your views, and if General Domroise wants to come in on that briefly, please be my guest. I know you you also wrote into the chat, General. So, Ivo, first back to you. I mean, it's fundamentally about France's relationship to NATO, and, and so this is purely a Parisian issue, and a question of how comfortable France is to have these kinds of questions within the NATO context. NATO needs to be able to 
convince France that if it joins the MPG, just as it rejoined the military command structure, that it will retain its nuclear independence. There is only one country that can convince them of that, and that's, that's the UK, because the UK is exactly in that position. Mm. And so I think a, a nuclear discussion between the UK and France that says, yes, we have, in fact, committed our forces to NATO, but we retain the independence thereof. We don't actually have to commit our forces to NATO and, uh, and still be part of the MPG, which would be maybe where the French would end up. Uh, as long as the French can, you can convince the French that that's the case, which includes command and control uh, uh, issues and, and more detailed issues, uh, there should be no reason why Paris cannot join the MPG from a planning perspective, not from a command perspective. I think command and control, I don't think that's going to change for the French for a very, very, very long time. And I don't think it's necessary. The U.S. doesn't hand over command and control of its nuclear weapons, including the ones that are, that are uh, being flown on, on, on German or Dutch airplanes. The command remains firmly in, in, in U.S. hands until such time that the release authority has been, has been granted. And you, so you, I think you can, you can figure out a way to do that, but it, it's really Paris that needs to move in that direction. General, any, any comment? Yeah, thank you very much, Ambassador Ishigan, Ambassador Ivo, uh, for your findings and your report. Let me draw your attention to a different aspect. We always had said that there is a relationship between conventional forces and nuclear forces. And we used to say you need to have a certain amount of conventional forces in order to avoid going nuclear early. Today, we watch uh, that we have no division level in the UK anymore all forces in the UK, they can't get off the island in a crisis. They have one platoon in, 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 in Europe. And the other forces, you know, in Germany, maybe one or two divisions, and you know, all the other countries. In other words, there is a possibility right now, according to the theory, that as there are not enough conventional forces, we might be forced, should Russia try to attack us, we might be forced to react, go nuclear very early. Can you uh, comment on this? And thank you very much for your finding. And I stop here because there are differences in France with autonomy and so on. So, so okay, thank you very much. Okay, that's a good final question. Ivo? You know, it's a very important question. I think I think the, the, the answer is uh, the same that we've always tried to have, which is yes, therefore we need to increase our capabilities. Yeah. Uh, particularly our conventional capabilities, and and it is and it is a little ironic that that those who are most worried about uh, a, a conflict going nuclear early on are also the ones who are investing least in the capacity to make sure that it doesn't. So uh, with that, I, you know, I go back to one of our core recommendations. It's not about two percent. It, it's about having the real capabilities necessary to present a credible deterrent to Russia that does not solely rely on, on nuclear escalation. Uh, and that's, by the way, something we've been debating, again, in the NATO context since, what, the late 1950s. Yeah, as I like to say, when Donald Trump always claimed that he was the first president to get the Europeans to, tra to try to pay more for defense, I said, actually, every president since Harry Truman has, when Truman said it was time to have 90 divisions that the Europeans needed to provide in, in 1952. So uh, we've been at this for a long time and we presumably will continue to be. Thank you very much, Ivo. I think this has been great. I, I'm sure we could go on for another hour or so. These are complex, but very important issues. Thank you for making yourself available. I was so um, pleased and, and, and felt really privileged to be part of this task force group where with so many very experienced people participating, especially for me as a European, the presence of the Asian view, of course, is also enlightening. And we should, if I may, may make that point at the end, we should, as we discuss our nuclear predicaments, we should not lose sight of the fact that there is probably more going on in this, in this area right now and in, in coming years in Asia than uh, as important as our European theory may be, Asia, needs to be watched. This is strategically very important. And we also know everything is linked to everything else. And therefore, we cannot simply ignore what happens in the area of proliferation or non-proliferation or 
uh, new nuclear powers, etc., and arms control in the Indo-Pacific. Thank you all for participating. Thanks for those who had questions or comments. Thank you, Chicago Council on Global Affairs, and thank you, Ivo. This was wonderful. It was exactly what I hoped uh, it would give us. And of course, thank you to uh, the team at the Center for International Security and my own uh, team uh, at, uh, at Herity and uh, under the uh, leadership of Tobias. We'll continue to try to focus on these issues. They are very important as Germany goes into this election process in coming weeks and months. Thank you all. Have, have a good afternoon in America and good night to the Europeans. Okay. Have a nice evening. Bye-bye.